Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. It's December 2020, and over four years on from the Brexit vote, and despite a general election campaign, one under the slogan of getting Brexit done, we're still here, despite everything, still talking about Brexit. But now we're staring down the twin barrels of a looming Brexit deadline with the possibility of a no-deal exit and, of course, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. So who better to help us understand some of the complexities involved in all of this than Professor Jonathan Porters? Jonathan, welcome, and please introduce yourself. I'm Jonathan Porters. Um, I'm Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London, and also a Senior Fellow of the UK and Changing Europe, which is a... uh, um, a, a research network of academics that uh, uh, looks basically at Brexit-related issues. Um, and I used to be a civil servant. I was uh, um, a government economist for a very long time. Fantastic. Then, firstly, let's begin with the economy. So, in what state did the UK economy start this year? What's the context um, before Brexit and COVID have hit? Um, I mean, the the context was that the UK economy had been um, essentially, um, you know, had had sort of almost come to a halt, actually, uh, pre-Brexit and pre-COVID. You know, we essentially saw no growth from when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister in in, uh, 2019, right through to the start of the pandemic. So the economy was pretty flat. It wasn't a disaster, but it certainly wasn't doing well. Um, And that was really a combination of of a number of things. Um, It was partly uh, continued Brexit-related uncertainty and partly just the fact that actually ever since the financial crisis, uh, economic growth has been fairly weak in the UK. We, in common with, to, to be fair, lots of other countries, especially European countries, have... Um, had had a pretty have 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 experienced fairly low growth and and stagnation in living standards for quite a while now. So, how has the pandemic changed things on top of that situation and context in which we entered the pandemic? Well, obviously, the um, you know the pandemic led um, partly because uh, uh, the government uh, of the lockdown, which re- restricted economic activity, and partly simply um, what people decided for themselves and the fall off in, in uh, people going out, spending, businesses spending, uh, trade, travel, investment, and, and so on, uh, led to a very very sharp fall in the economy. Um, and you know, in, in, in some sense, that was not a bad thing in the sense that you know, it was necessary to stop the spread of the virus. It was a deliberate consequence of, of what um, both individuals and the government wanted to do. So that in itself, um, I don't think, you know, the fact that GDP fell by 20 or 25% uh, um, in, in April and May um, was neither surprising nor necessarily uh, a, a bad thing. It was it was a, a result of the pandemic. Um, it's really in the recovery phase that that we'll see uh, um, how much damage it has done, if indeed it has done them any damage at all. So you've spoken there about the recovery phase. So what should the government be doing to get the economy back on track? Um, well, a lot of what the government has done already, uh, uh, and which again, is, is very much in line with other governments, particularly in Europe, have done, has been broadly the right thing, which is to say, look, um, this phase is likely to be temporary. We need to stop it doing permanent damage. Um, how do we stop it doing permanent damage? By preventing uh, the short-term hit to economic activity um, turning into um, long-term mass unemployment, failures of good businesses, 
um, and so on. Uh, and therefore, we will use the government finances um, to ensure that people don't lose their jobs, to ensure that businesses don't go bust. Um, so the government uh, did a lot of that. Um, now, of course, despite that, uh, um, and inevitably, I think some people will lose their jobs and some businesses will go bust. So the role of government in the recovery phase, and let's be clear, we have really been in the recovery phase since June or July compared to the, the worst of the, uh, 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 of the economic hit. Um, the, the task for the government will be to um, help uh, ensure that people who are unemployed can get new jobs, that new businesses can be created and so on. Um, now, so far, it has done some of that, not as much as I would like, but the real test, I, I think, will actually come now in the first half of next year um, as you know, we, we, the vaccines are rolled out and we go back to something to, like normal to ensure that whatever unemployment there is um, doesn't last for very long and that new jobs and businesses can be created. So can you just talk us through some of the more specific policies and um things that you think the government, and maybe not just the government, if you want to widen it, please do. What are some of the things that they should be doing to maintain demand, spending in the economy, the ability of people to um, to, f- to feel confident enough to spend their money? And what other <clears throat> measures specifically do you think need to be taken to ensure that, that we are in as good a position as we can be? Um, I think the main focus has to be on unemployment and job creation, and that means not just protecting jobs by the furlough scheme, but really massive programs of um, helping young unemployed people to get jobs with subsidised jobs, uh, um, helping uh, people who've been out of work for a while through uh, grants or through retraining, helping people set up their own businesses. Essentially, we should be just doing as much as we can, as quickly as we can, and throwing, if necessary, throwing lots of money at the problem. Um, we should. Uh, uh, one thing which I think has been quite disappointing is the it was disappointing last week was the Chancellor's refusal to commit to extending the um, extra twenty pounds on universal credit beyond this year. There's really no excuse whatsoever um, for not. Uh, doing that, which restores a small portion of the cut, the unnecessary cuts that George Osborne made um, to, to benefit spending um, in the previous 10 years. There's no, you know, both from an overall demand point of view and from a point of view of individual hardship, there's no excuse for, for pushing people further into poverty by cutting universal credit by 20 quid a week in April. Um, so in terms of, of what more the government could do, those would be my main priorities would be increasing universal credit and doing even more on job creation. In particular, um, you know, there are areas where we know we want to spend more, we will want to create new jobs over the next few years, um, most notably in the social care sector, where we know uh, we knew before the pandemic that it was underfunded and understaffed. We know that even more now. There's no reason not to put more money and resources in there now. And similarly, um, in uh, on the... Uh, decarbonizing the economy, the government has effectively recommitted to a very ambitious set of objectives for decarbonization. We might as well get on with the investment in the job creation there now as quickly as possible, since we know we're going to be doing that um, over the uh, medium to long term anyway. So we'll come to the issue of how we pay for this all in a moment. But is there, and you've, you've touched on it a little bit there, but are there going to be is there going to be a political problem with a Conservative government committing to some of the quite active state policies and labour market policies that you're talking about? So we can come back, as I say, to how you balance the books and pay for all of this. But are we going to see that some of these things won't happen because of an ideological opposition to them? Or how will the government likely find this commitment to a more activist and interventionist state? Well, I think in some ways the pendulum has been swinging back towards a more activist and interventionist state for the last few years anyway, uh, um, even before the pandemic. 
um, under even under Theresa May, there were some moves towards a more activist industrial policy. And certainly, I don't think Boris Johnson has any particular ideological aversion to lots of state spending in various ways. Um, so I think, you know, uh, um, but yes, uh, obviously, this is not a Thatcherite agenda, but I don't think that's where the country is. And I'm not sure that's even where the, most of the Conservative Party is at the moment. Um, you know, and I think you have to also distinguish between a um, state and interventionist agenda in general, where I don't think actually the government does have an ideological political problem, and then the distributional consequences of that. In other words, who gains and who loses, who are you spending the money on and who you're not, um, where there are obviously uh, choices to be made, there are always choices to be made. Okay, so let's talk about balancing the books. Now, arguably, we are starting to see some of the ideological um, discrepancies between a more activist state and uh, a conservative, sort of fiscal conservatism, with things like the cut in universal credit. So how on earth are we going to pay for all of this public spending? Never mind what you're talking about going forward, but just what we've already done so far. And given that it led to the austerity period after 2008 and the financial crash, is it not likely that we're going to have a repeat of that period of austerity for the next few years? Um, uh, well, I certainly don't think we're going to have... A, the history will not repeat itself precisely. Um, you know, let's start with the economics. How are we going to pay for it? Well, in the short term, we're not, and we shouldn't, right? I mean... Um, the important, the, the proper way to think about this is to see government borrowing as the the flip side and indeed the consequence of the increase in private saving that has happened as a result of the pandemic. What's happened during the pandemic? People have not been spending nearly as much as they usually do. Um, that's particularly the case for middle and upper income people whose incomes have held up, but whose spending has fallen because they can't spend and travel, restaurants, and so on. Uh, so lots of extra private saving. And um, corporate. the corporate sector is saving a lot more as well because, quite understandably, no, no business wants to invest at the moment. Um, the flip side of why, um, what does, where does that private saving go? Well, almost by definition, it goes into government borrowing because everything has to add up, right? Saving and borrowing in the economy have to add up. That's just an accounting uh, uh, fact. Um, so uh, you have a lot of private saving. The consequence and flip side of that is a lot of public borrowing. It's almost automatic. And, you know, the damaging thing would be if government tried to avoid that, if they left that saving nowhere to go. And how do we know that's what's happening? How do we know that what this is being driven by higher private saving rather than the government borrowing and borrowing and borrowing as much as it can and taking the money out of the private sector? Well, we know that because... We can see the price. We can see what interest rates are. What's happened to interest rates? Interest rates are at their lowest level in recorded economic history. And by that, I mean the last 5,000 years, quite literally. Um, so why are interest rates so low? It's because the private sector really, really, really wants to put its money somewhere safe, i.e. in government bonds. So that is what's actually happening. Um, uh, is that uh, you know the government is simply soaking up this private saving? So how does that? Where do we go? How does that turn around? Well, it turns around when the economy recovers, when people want to spend and borrow again, um, and growth returns. And let's be clear: that's would be that's entirely what we want. We want that to happen. We want people to be wanting to save less and invest more. And when that happens, the economy will recover, the deficit will shrink, and at some point we may have to start thinking about how to finance the ongoing deficit. Um, but that is a, not a problem we should be scared of. That is a problem we should want to have. Um, I saw something just now, Tom Newton Dunn, preached that what keeps the Chancellor up at night is uh, um, the fear that interest rates will go up. Um, I hope that's not true. If it is true, it really shows he doesn't understand how the economy works because hoping that demand, private saving will fall, demand and investment will recover and therefore interest rates will go up is precisely what any chancellor should want because the alternative is low growth, 
high unemployment, stagnant demand. Um, and now under those circumstances, we can carry on borrowing. We would carry on borrowing at very low interest rates. Everything would be fine as far as financing and government would be concerned. But the economy we, would be stuffed. And, the, and we, uh, uh, you know, individuals, households, especially unemployed people would be stuffed. So we're much better off with somewhat higher interest rates. So that's the... That's how you have to think about what's actually happening in the economy and, and where this high level of borrowing is coming from. Um, uh, the second point is, well, how do we pay for all this debt we've run up during the crisis? Um, and there, again, you have to deconstruct the sentence. Who is this we that we're talking about? Who do we owe this money to? The answer is the government, that is the pub British public sector, owns it to the British private sector for the most part. And certainly almost all of this new borrowing is, the, is the, the counterpart of higher saving in the private sector. In other words, we owe this money, this new money, primarily to, our, to ourselves. That doesn't mean that the government doesn't have to refinance it over time. It will. But these are transactions within ourselves. And that raises all sorts of distributional questions in due course. But it doesn't really, it's not the idea like the, you know, this idea that we somehow we're piling up debts for our children is just nonsense again. Uh, you know, and, and we should not allow that sort of language to go unchallenged. Can I, can I jump in, J uh, Jonathan? Because um, one thing that I think will confuse people who are, are not expert on this and thinking back of down to what happened the last sort of a decade ago is that I think why was austerity supposedly necessary in uh, from 2008, 10 onwards? And why is it not now? And I, I think I've heard three versions of this. I kind of suspect I know what, how you might answer, but let me tell yeah. you the three versions that I think are possible, and you can tell me which one you're right. One is, it was, it was wrong then, it was wrong now, for reasons that have been well rehearsed, and we had all the arguments yeah. we've had in the last 10 years. Another one is, things are different now. You mentioned interest rates, maybe there's other things. Yeah. This problem is different from a, from a financial crisis. That's another interpretation. And the third one, a bit more subtle, that I've also heard, is that, economists have a different theory now. And back in the mid-2000s, people thought sort of fiscal policy wasn't that important for stimulating growth, and they've changed their minds since. Um, and I want you hear less often, but I have read that. So which of those is, is true, do you think? Um, well, it's a combination of the first and third. That is, it is it's wrong then and it was wrong now, um, but it was more excusable to get it wrong then because we didn't have as much evidence. We didn't know, or, you know, some people, um, and uh, you know, I was one of them, thought that interest rates would probably stay low as long as the economy stayed weak. Um, and we also thought that once interest rates zero, you had to place more reliance on fiscal policy. So we, we said then it was wrong, and we were right. Um, but um, I think it's fair to say that the, the empirical evidence in favor of that view um, is much stronger now. We've had another 12 years of experience, and, and, and we've now... You know, and particularly in the last year, we sort of tested that theory to, do, you know, to destruction, except, of course, it hasn't been destroyed. It's come through with flying colours. We've tested that theory by running up much higher deficits than we did even then with, uh, with absolutely no impact on pushing up interest rates. Um, so I think that that's, you know, so, so was it a mistake then? Yes. Um, do I have some sympathy for some of the people who were arguing for it then, uh, well, a bit, uh, certainly less than I would have for anyone who would be arguing uh, uh, now that we needed to cut deficits. So just finally, how much of, can we just grow our, uh, our way to some sort of economic recovery, especially with regards to um, the debt that we have had to take on? Um, I mean, in the short term, I, I don't see any reason why we can't go back all the way. I mean, you know, assuming, and this, of course, is not any of our subjects, but seems fairly reasonable now to assume that we will have a widely available, uh, very effective vaccine rolled out to the whole country reasonably soon. Um, what, what exactly should be stopping us from going back to the same level of economic activity and employment that we had before? Um, well, it won't be the virus, because the virus will be gone. Um, so if we don't, it's only because uh, um, we've got policy wrong. So there's no excuse. If we do not get back to a reasonable level of output in employment, you know, six months after the, the virus is defeated completely and we no longer have to worry about it, that is because policy is wrong, no other reason. Uh, that's the first point. 
Um, the, and the debt, well, the debt will just be there. It all has been financed at these ridiculously low interest rates by historical standards, meaning that the ongoing interest burden will be macroeconomically insignificant. You don't really have to worry about it. Um, so we can just let it sit there for the most part and, and let it be eroded by growth in the future. There will be, um, there is an ongoing issue, which is that we don't tax ourselves enough to pay for the public spending that we want to have. Um, uh, that was true before the crisis. It will be even more true after the crisis if, as a consequence of that, we decide we want a more interventionist government. Um, but that's not really directly caused by the virus. That's, you know, something that's long been a problem with British politics, that people want more public services and they're prepared to pay for. Um, and you have to solve that by, um, you know, in my view, by somewhat higher taxes. Not to pay back the debt, but just to ensure that going forward, when times are more normal, we return to something closer, not to a balanced budget, but to a sustainable uh, fiscal path. So there will, in, in my view, should be some tax rises down the road, but not particularly because we've piled up all of this debt, just because on an ongoing basis, when you get back to normal, uh, the government has to finance itself. I think that sounds eminently sensible in terms of actually looking at the policy around this and not treating it as fatalism but rather that in order to have the more uh, sort of activist and interventionist state that we're moving towards, that we need to look then at both sides of fiscal policy as well and look to have a more redistributive taxation system. So let's move on then to uh, the other main topic, which is Brexit. How do you rate the chances of deal versus no deal at this point? as we sit here on the 2nd of December? Well, I mean, I could say 50-50, which, of course, is pretty pathetic, really, because it just sort of looks as if I don't want to be wrong. Um, but, I mean, I think, standing back from what I or you or anyone else thinks, I mean, the simple fact is we've known broadly what the achievable deal looks like for at least the last six months. Um, and the question then was, does Boris Johnson... Um, and to some extent, the, the people on the European side, but mostly Johnson, want this, want the deal that's on the table or, or don't, doesn't he? Um, and we know he doesn't make up his mind until he has to, and uh, he hasn't made up his mind yet. Um, so uh, when I say it's probably roughly 50-50, um, that's, uh, that's, you know, because actually no one knows. No one has the answer, including Boris Johnson, because, you know, we are talking about the man who sat down the night before he had to make a decision about which side to support the, in the referendum and wrote two articles. Um, what reason do we believe that he's approaching this decision any differently? Um, so I think, you know, the, the simple answer is, you know, uh, um, it's pretty evenly balanced. I guess I'm more on the side of no deal and have been for a few months um, but I don't think anyone knows. And I say, I don't think Boris Johnson knows. Can you just talk us through some of the elements of the decision, your perception of the decision that he is facing and the different things that he's weighing up? And I assume that would be, I mean, it's a, he's a politician, so it must be a political decision. But what are some of the elements that you think um, are in favour of a deal, against a deal, in favour of no deal, against no deal, that he personally is weighing up at this um, I mean, I think, you know, that, that we, we sort of know what the deal looks like in, in policy terms, right? It involves the UK um, agreeing to accept a bunch of obligations relating to constraining its future action on state aids, environmental, labour policy and so on, in a way which Johnson is uncomfortable with. That's the and also a messy compromise of some sort on fishing rights and so on. So we sort of know what the deal looks like. But I see the sort of fundamental choice in the following way. A deal is clearly positive sub-economically, right? Both sides will be better off with a deal than without a deal. Um, there's no doubt about that. And for that reason, a lot of people who approach this from an economist's point of view um, think that a deal is therefore inevitable It's just because it's irrational not to have a deal. Um, and that's true from an economic point of view. But what is the political calculus? And while it's true that a deal is positive some economically for both sides, a deal is negative economically for both sides relative to the status quo. The, the, the impact of a deal will be to make both sides worse off economically than they currently are. 
Um, that, again, that also is inevitable. Um, and the problem is, politically, is that you have to, that, that it's the difference from the status quo that people see. So from the point of view of Johnson, his choice is, do I have, um, do I agree to a deal? In that case, I have to go out and tell the British public, this is a great deal, it's fantastic, the Europeans backed down and I got most of everything I wanted, um, and it's going to be great for the UK. Um, even though, actually, relative to where we are now, it's going to be pretty rubbish. Um, or do I go for a no deal, in which case the economics will be even worse, but instead of saying this is a great deal, I can go out and say, yes, this is bad, but it's all the fault of those Europeans. They wanted to steal, carry on stealing our fish, and they, were, they wanted to maintain us as a colony of the EU after we'd left, and that was unacceptable. Um, so we've had, regrettably, they forced no deal upon us. Um, that's a political choice he faces. Own a bad deal or blame an even worse no deal on the Europeans. And, you know, I'm, uh, the same is true, to some extent at least, for the Europeans. Mr. Macron has a choice of going out after a deal and saying to his fishermen, I'm sorry, we've had to give the British back some of their fish, but it was the best we could do, and it's still a good deal, and it's better than not having any deal when you would have lost all the fish. Or he can go and say, I'm sorry, um, there's no deal, and the British have taken all their fish back, but um, given how unreasonable Boris Johnson was and they were threatening to break, rip up all their agreements, we just had no choice. It's all their fault. Um, those are the political choices people have to make, um, and, and that's why it's so finely balanced. Can, can I ask a bit about the kind of weighing up this political and economic balancing act? I'm reading an article right now. I'll give you the title. It says, Whitehall is asking if the eventual Brexit deal is going to be better than no deal at all. And that's by uh, Eleanor Langford, politics hire. Mm. Um, and it seems that the sort of thrust of the various people that are interviewed in that article is that um, while yes, yes, no deal will be bad, it sounds like the kind of hard Brexit so-called deal we're going to get and that is not that far from no deal anyway. So it, it sounded like the, 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 the sort of importance of getting a deal has gone quite a lot down. I'm wondering if you agree with that. And also just to reflect on, you know, we had years of people saying that a no deal would be this kind of colossal catastrophe. Um, is that still true? Was that ever true? Um, so on the first point, uh, I mean, in, in, in narrow economic terms about, uh, you know, particularly looking at trade relations, that is true. So the modelling that I and colleagues have done in, you know, in common with the modelling, say, that the government has done, in fact, as well as other independent analyses, suggests that a no deal is probably only, you know, suggests that the sort of deal that's on the table is probably at least two thirds as bad as, as, as no deal. In, in terms of its long-run impact on trade and so on, right? So the damage of a no de- of, of this deal might be um, five five and a half percent of GDP over the long run. The damage of no deal might be seven or eight percent higher, but not that much more high, higher, you might say. Um, and indeed, that was what was the Office of Budget Responsibility said in its analysis um, the other day, um, saying that the damage of a deal, hard Brexit deal would be 4%, the damage of no deal would be 6% or something like that. So there is a consensus that um, in the long run, in terms of the narrow rules on trade, um, actually a no deal is significantly worse than the deal that's on the table, but um, not perhaps that much worse. Um, So that is correct. Um, uh, I think, and this is, I'm talking here from a political, you know, as a observe the political scene rather than the economist, that that misses a, a few things. Um, uh, I mean, it, it just misses the damage that will be done to our political relationship with the EU and hence over time to our economic relationship with, with the EU of um, a no deal in the sense that if there is a deal, well, at least both sides will have to come out and say, we're friends now, we got a deal, it's wonderful, everybody's happy. Um, uh, and that may help create the atmosphere under which you will go on to 
further deepen the relationship in various ways over the next few years and mitigate the negative consequences of, of the hard Brexit. Um, by contrast, if we have no deal, again, both sides have to come out and shout, it's the other side's fault, they are totally unreasonable, and there will be some very difficult politi potential political flashpoints, most obviously on Northern Ireland and with fish in the channel, um, which could make things even worse. So uh, I think that's right in the narrow sense, but it risks being wrong in the broader sense uh, 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 in terms of what the political consequences of the two different paths might be. Um, so that, that, that um, and then in terms of the consequences of, of, of no deal, um, uh, um, I mean, I think in terms of, of the disruption at channel ports, supply shortages and all the rest of it, I think... You know, four years on, we probably are past the point at which you would expect that to be, you know, more than than relatively minor, at least in macroeconomic terms. Although no doubt it will make headlines. I personally would be more wor less worried about, you know, that that we're, our, the, the supermarket shelves will be empty. I don't think that will happen. Um, I'll be more worried about, as I said, uh, the potential for some quite damaging political developments in Northern Ireland, the potential for confrontation between trawlermen and so on in, uh, in our fishing grounds. Thanks. So can you tell us a little bit more, both about what the deal is going to look like and the what the economic impact might be? So you've talked about the sort of percentages, um, changes to the economy let's say. But can you actually put a bit more sort of flesh on those bones about why those percentages are the way they are, how they've been arrived at, and what's been sort of modelled and looked at by going through what a deal is likely to be if it is secured? Well, what a deal... Actually, sorry, if you, yeah. if you don't mind. Actually, what a no deal might be as, as well. So if you can sort of maybe sector by sector or look at some of those here. Well, uh, I mean, I think the important thing to you know, so what happens, deal or no deal, is we leave the single market and we leave the customs union. That means an end to frictionless trade. It means customs declarations, um, lots of other um, health checks on food, lots of other regulatory, diver, you know, um, regulatory standards in one side of the channel not being recognized the other, and so on and so forth. Um, lots and lots of detailed bits of red tape and bureaucracy, which I won't bore you with. Um, and that will happen, deal or no deal. Um, so that's the important thing to remember, that all these new trade barriers will happen, deal or no deal. And in particular, um, the whole new apparatus of customs checks um, at the, the ports and um, the need for UK goods to meet EU regulatory standards, which they will not be recognised as, just because they're produced in the UK to our regulatory standards the way they are now. So that's the, the big set of changes. Um, what difference would a deal make? The main difference a deal would make would be that there would be no tariffs uh, or quotas. Um, so there would be no uh, uh, charges payable on goods flowing. All the other blockages would remain in place, or lots of them would remain in place, um, even if there was a deal. Um, but there would be no tariffs or charges. So those are the, you know, that's the key thing. You know, what we call no non-tariff barriers are going to happen, deal or no deal. Um, a deal would largely or wholly remove any tariffs. Um, what does that mean in terms of sectors? Um, it means that, uh, um, you know, so a deal matters quite a lot for, uh, say, the car sector, uh, automotive sector, but tariffs there are still significant, uh, uh, up to 10%. Uh, so... Uh, um, a tariff uh, barrier would make a big difference there. Um, it matters quite, the uh, deal matters rather less so in some other sectors where actually they're more worried about non-tariff barriers and hence it's not really a deal or no deal that, that matters. It's simply the fact of Brexit. So what impact is this likely to have on people's day-to-day -day life? If you're, a, let's say, a, a plumber in a coastal town somewhere on in uh, in England, let's say, are you going to see any difference in your working life when you go to do your shopping? What day-to-day -day impact is this going to have on people? Um, well, uh, so um, if, if there's 
Um, no deal. We'll probably see food prices rise because we import a lot of food from the uh, continent and uh, uh, um, uh, there'll be new tariffs. So we, we estimate that food prices might go up by 3 or 4% in the event of a no deal. Um, deal or no deal, <coughs> you'll only, um, you'll have to uh, um, wait in a different queue when you go to the continent and you'll only be allowed in for uh, um, three months at a time, which may be difficult for people with second homes. Uh, you won't be able to go and work unless you get a work visa, which, depending on where you're going, um, could be quite a lot more difficult. Um, if you're a um, small business that sells stuff to, uh, particularly if you sell stuff by, say, a mail order or online, um, there will be um, some quite complicated new rules relating to VAT and customs, which don't exist at the moment. Um, but those are, are some of the things uh, that, uh, that, that, that may change uh, immediately. If you're, um, in, if, if you're a small business here and you employ people from uh, um, European citizens, well, if you were employing them now, you probably won't have to do much. But if you want to employ any more in the future, you'd have to go through, you'd have to uh, um, apply for a, a visa and go through the, uh, the process and pay some fairly large fees. Um, those are some of the things that, that will change. Okay, so you, you had a bet with Ivan Rogers that the UK would still be in the single market in January 2021. What chance do you think of winning that bet now? Very low. Um, I haven't conceded yet to Ivan because Brexit never ceases to surprise us both. Um, but uh, at the moment... Uh, that you know, that was essentially a bet that the UK would choose to extend one way or another, choose to extend the transition period, uh, uh, um, so, you know, which we're in now, where we have registered, but we're still in all the rules, including the single market. Um, but uh, um, it looks as if that is we're past the point where that's a realistic option. So you know, never say never, and uh, I'll pay Ivan uh, um, uh, at or around uh, uh, the new year. Um, but at the moment, uh, uh, he is certainly a, a heavy favourite to win. So do you think that a compromise based around continued membership of the single market, perhaps through an EEA or EFTA arrangement, would have been the compromise that could have brought the country together after the Brexit result? Is that something that you personally would have liked to have seen and something that you think might have been acceptable to potentially to both sides in the country at large? Um, I think that, you know, uh, um, the short answer is no. Um, and uh, um, I mean, I wrote a blog before the referendum uh, um, saying that it's quite possible there would be no stable majority for any option because you'd, you'd owe whatever option you ended up with, hard Brexit, EEA option, or remain would still be have, have less than less than fifty percent support, and there would always be another option which was preferred to it. Um, uh, the so-called Condorcet paradox, um, where A is preferred to B by a majority, but B is preferred to C by a majority, and C is preferred to A by a majority. So you can go round and round in circles. And um, I wrote that as a sort of mathematical and theoretical exercise because it's a, an amusing paradox from the voting theory which most people think almost never happens in practice but it seems to be sort of where we actually ended up rather bizarrely um uh i'm not sure um whatever you think of the merits of it as a policy option i'm not sure that it was realistic to, to imagine that a position where um the um we accepted free movement um, which was perhaps the thing which a large proportion of, of those who voted leave cared most about. Uh, um, uh, w w I'm not sure that was ever a realistic option. Um, and certainly once Mrs. Uh, May made the, the speech she did at party conference in, in October 2016, it was not a real, you know, she, she ruled it out um, uh, for, for good and all. Um, when she made clear we'd be leaving, uh, you know, that, that, that free movement would end and we'd be leaving, uh, um, uh, effectively leaving the, the single market. Um, uh, and even if she hadn't, um, I think, as, as many of my colleagues said, it's questionable whether there, it's a, whether a status quo under which the UK 
is a rule taker in the same way that Norway is, was ever a viable option. We're just too big and too awkward um, for that really to be to be acceptable. Uh, either to uh, you know, either that would be acceptable to British politicians and British public on the one hand, um, or to uh, or whether the EU would accept us giving us the sort of autonomy that would be required for that to be acceptable. So um, perhaps regret, you know, regrettably, I'm not sure that was ever a realistic option, frankly, uh, um, even if Theresa May hadn't been who she, who she was. Um, I think that that EAF option was probably always doomed. That doesn't mean it needed to have been as acrimonious as it has been, both in terms of our relationship with the EU and our political debate here. Uh, but there's plenty of blame to go around on, and, and plenty of things which could have been done better so that all this could have happened in a less painful uh, way uh, and less confrontational both internally and externally. Um, but once we decide to, to Brexit, was a hard Brexit always inevitable? I think in retrospect the answer is probably yes. So just before we go on to the next topic, do you think then that there is an available compromise or has ever been an available compromise? If you rule out the EEA single market option, do you think there is any available sort of compromise out there that can can work as a way to bring the country back together? Um, well, I mean, I'm not sure that, uh, um, you know, that... that, that I'm not sure. It's not obvious to me um, that uh, there is an intermediate position between um, a relatively hard Brexit of the sort we're headed to now, deal or no deal, and a position where we accept that um, we are within the we we are. within the sphere of influence of the EU and therefore we are a rule one way or another we are a rule taker to a very large extent either as a member or as you know in in, you know uh, um, through some sort of associate membership or EA type membership Um, you know so I'm not saying EA membership is impossible but I wouldn't regard that as a compromise it would effectively mean that the the people on the Brexit side of the argument would admit that they'd uh, um, um, that, that we couldn't go it alone. Um, and I'm not sure there is an obvious compromise there, frankly. Um, that doesn't mean you can't bring the country together. Um, you know, there was a perfectly stable um, uh, and uh, um, stable majority within this country for EU membership, um, grudging in some parts, but it was accepted across the political spectrum and even by most of the people who didn't much like the EU for a very, very long period of time. Um, you know, was that a compromise? No, we were fully a member of the EU. But was it stable and did it command majority support? Was it the consensus? Yes. Can that be consensus be built for Brexit or for whatever, for, for our current, for our new version where we're, you know, our new settlement where we have, uh, where we are independent um, and sovereign um, with a hard Brexit where we go our own way and we treat the EU as effectively as a third country and vice versa? Um, maybe we can build a consensus around that. Um, that involves the people who lost accepting that they lost, um, uh, just as the people who uh, lost in 1973 for the most part, uh, or 1975, um, accepted they had lost for uh, for the best part of, of, of 40 years. Um, but uh, um, that's not a compromise, that's just a consensus. I think that's a really, really good point, actually, and something that we haven't so much engaged with and talked about is actually the issue not just of finding a compromise to to get make people happy but actually seeking that consensus so okay so let's move on there that seems a good place i mean i think you know there's a good analogy here um which which uh you know i've seen which is is um the the concept of loser's consent um and how you make a decision you know, not that you seek a, some sort of compromise between winners and losers on the substance, but how you get um, consent, uh, a, a consensus. Um, and the, uh, um, uh, a good example of this being the, uh, um, uh, the Welsh Assembly government, where 
Um, the devolution referendum in 1977 was won by a, a considerably narrower margin, I think, than the Brexit referendum, right? Um, but the winners didn't say, oh, we have to have a compromise between having a, a, a Welsh Assembly and not having a Welsh Assembly. There was a Welsh Assembly. And it, you know, but they also went out of their way to ensure that people who were on the losing side were brought in the tent to working out what that new settlement looked like um, without triumphalism, without, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to rub people's noses in. Well, you know, they're recognising a result. They recognised the result had to be implemented, but doing it in a way which was designed so as to build a consensus across Wales. Um, and that clearly did not happen uh, in the UK after... I mean, I'm not going to say whose fault. I mostly think it is. There's plenty of blame to go around. But, you know, a lot of the problems we've had are not because, uh, uh, um, you know, we uh, um, that they're not in my view because we should have come up with some messy compromise between Brexit and not Brexit, but because uh, we didn't get to a position where there was that genuine loser's consent. I think that's a really good point. Thank you for that. Okay, so let's move on. One of the defining issues of Brexit, and we've talked about it with regard to EEA option and single market, has been immigration. Now, you've done an awful lot of work on the economics of immigration. So what have you learned? Um, well, <laughs> um, I mean, I think, you know, there is a strong consensus among economists that, it, that, that relatively liberal economic, uh, relatively liberal migration policies are good for the economy, um, they don't have much, if any, negative impact on, on native workers. Uh, they don't push up unemployment. They don't have much of an impact on wages. Um, and there's loads of research, some of which I've done, some of it which has been done by colleagues of mine, uh, which shows that was true in the UK, particularly after uh, free movement became a big issue here. Free movement was very good for the UK. Uh, um, from an economic point of view, and I, you know, um, and then more broadly, I've also done a fair amount of work on the broader political and social consequences of immigration. I'm pretty positive about that as well, uh, um, both in general and in the UK context. Uh, so I'm very much a liberal uh, when it comes to, to immigration, um, you know, and, and uh, um, uh, equally, of course, it, it has always been a big political issue. Um, there is, you know, and, and that's been true in the UK off and on for um, at least the last uh, uh, um, 70 years or so. There's nothing new about that. Um, and it, it's complicated and, the, the, you know, people have, uh, people have views on immigration are driven by a combination of economic, social and political forces. Um, but um, one thing I think which is very important, which is, you know, the recent development has been this very sharp um, improvement in public attitudes to immigration over the last few years. The British public is much more positive about both the economic and the social cultural impacts of immigration than they were four or five years ago. We don't know why that is, um, but it's, uh, it's very welcome in my view and hopefully uh, gives us some cause for optimism going forward. Um, I'm sure, Jonathan, you've heard this argument before, but I think it's, it's worth putting it to you. Um, some people will say it's all very well to say the economy as a whole benefits from migration, but certain groups who are well rehearsed and particularly thinking about not the south of England, more like northern regions and people in lower paid jobs, the, the argument is made that it's all very well for everyone else, but certain people lose out. What is your response to that kind of micro argument? Well, I mean, the, the point is that the main point is that the micro evidence doesn't really support that. We struggle to find any significant impacts at all, you know, uh, um, even on lower wage workers where we have found some, they're pretty minimal. Um, there may be some negative impact for lower wage workers, but they sort of pale into insignificance compared to the other things that drive wages at the lower end, broader changes in the labor market, the impact of the changes to the national minimum wage, developments in unionization, the growth of, of different modes of work, uh, the growth of self-employment, all of those seem to be more important. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, the idea that, that places uh, that have 
fewer immigrants have somehow suffered more seems to me quite bizarre, actually. Why would we think that places in the northeast where immigration is much lower have somehow seen these negative impacts more than London, where, you know, immigration has always been concentrated in the, the UK? There's not really a lot of evidence to sustain this. It probably has happened to some extent to some people in some areas, um, but not not to a huge extent. And I mean, I you know my my main view on this still remains that that uh, um, to a large extent immigration was a very as it has historically been on many occasions uh, um, uh, a scapegoat, um, and in particular a scapegoat for the impacts of austerity. It was very convenient for uh, um, and you know as I said, you know the the strategy that uh, David Cameron and George Osborne adopted for a very long time of blaming the impacts of austerity on immigration, as well as, of course, benefit scroungers, was a very, very successful strategy until it backfired and lost them the, uh, the Brexit referendum, in which case it, and then it cost them their political careers. So you've talked about the, um, the economic benefit of immigration to the economy overall. Given that it's, I think, fairly well established that people are willing to accept being less well off in exchange for certain outcomes, how do you think this plays with the argument around immigration, and specifically I'm thinking around Brexit, that a lot of people have seemed to have done some work on this and um, that through their research have shown that people are willing to accept being less well off for greater sovereignty and greater control over and a reduction in immigration. So, how do you, what do you, what's your opinion on this? Um, well, I, I think that's a huge generalization unsupported by any evidence. You can get, if you ask these questions, well, you know, would you accept being worse off for X or would you pay £100 for Y? You can get pretty much any answer you want, right? It, typically, if you ask people, would you accept being £1,000 a year worse off in return for? no immigration or leaving a single market where they tend to say no. If you ask people generally, do you value sovereignty and control over this or that, they tend to say yes. I'm not sure that tells you anything useful at all, frankly. Um, so I'm not sure I uh, uh, accept the premise here. That doesn't mean to say that I don't that I think people vote entirely on economic grounds. Of course they don't, uh, nor should they. Uh, um, people are perfectly entitled to take into account lots of other things beyond the effect on their pocketbook or the national economy. Um, but uh, people don't, in practice, make these sort of pound-for-policy trade-offs, and, and I just don't think that's, uh, that's how it works. It's not how you or I work. I don't think we should assume how it's ordinary, you know, anyone else works. Um, I think, you know, you have to think, you know, the, there is a wide spectrum of views, and it's not one-dimensional, right? Uh, um, some people... Uh, do uh, some people who voted for Brexit did so because they prioritized what they wanted, just wanted fewer immigrants. Um, some people did it because they, not because they necessarily wanted fewer immigrants, because they wanted us to have control over who would come here. Some people voted, uh, you know, uh, thought that it's unfair that we prioritized Europeans over non-Europeans. Um, some people, by contrast, um, uh, quite the contrary, thought that they that voted because they thought that we would be flooded with uh, non-European immigrants like Syrian refugees because the European Union would force us to. And indeed, you know, that's effectively what vote leave told them. Um, so, uh, um, uh, and of course, lots of people voted Brexit for reasons which had little or nothing to do with immigration but had a lot to do with other uh, reasons for uh, wanting us to leave the European Union. Um, you know, uh, um, it, it is a very complicated set of attitudes. Um, and you have to, you know, when thinking about it and when you're working out how to, to formulate arguments, you have to take into account that people have different view, you know, views for, for a very different set of, set of reasons. You know, there has, um, it's fortunately shrinking, but there is a large segment of opinion in this country which is anti-immigration simply because some people are racist. We shouldn't shy away from that. It's not a majority, um, and it's not uh, the, you know, most Brexit supporters did not vote for that reason, but that's part of the, the uh, um, part of the vote. Equally, there are people who genuinely believe, even if incorrectly in my view, um, that immigration was bad from, you know, for 
uh, for the for the economy for one reason or another, and not uh, because they don't like immigrants as individuals or for for racist reasons. Um, you know that, that that's quite different. But there are there are plenty of people who did think that way. Um, so you have to be a bit more nuanced about it, I think. Okay, so let's bring this to the to a close by talking about the future and how we can seek to sort of bring the country together in all the different ways and find a sort of centre ground. And I think it's important to sort of echo the point that you made about this is not just about compromise between one and three being two, but actually establishing consensus, gaining the consent of losers and gaining the, the consent of the, the country as a whole. So I want to talk about to raise something from Deborah Mattinson's recent book, and you may or may not have read it, I don't know. In her recent book, Beyond the Red Wall, she talks of convening groups of Remain and Leave supporters, that they're able, through this process, to agree on an immigration system that prioritises the skill needs of the host country, i.e. us. So is that how you think a immigration system might look after Brexit, that potentially all people from anywhere are treated the same in terms of their potential as uh, immigrants and are then assessed according to the skill needs. So you talked about social care, and that's something that they talk about in the book, that the need for, for nurses and carers, stuff like that. Is that something, one, that you think is a realistic option and, two, something that you would like to see? And if not, what would your alternative be? Um, I, I mean, I think, and, and this is a good example, again, where you don't split the difference. Uh, uh, um, you know, uh, free movement was uh, uh, w- was very good for this country, and uh, I don't think uh, um, I, I'm not going to compromise my views on that. But once you've left the EU, as we have, there is no, uh, um, there is no justification, either economic or moral, for having a, a, a political, for giving special preference to Bulgarians over Indians, say, uh, um, uh, you know, you do need, you have to adjust your policy to the new circumstances. That does mean a non, a, a, an immigration policy which doesn't discriminate for the most part, at least, um, by, by nationality. So I think a new part, you know, a, a new set of policies that doesn't discriminate by nationality, which is what the government is trying to do, is is the right one. And I think that that does actually already command a degree of consensus. I think most people, Remainers or Leavers, except that once we're outside the EU, once free movement is ended, um, you do need to, that that is the right way to go. Um, there are lots of economic and political issues about skill-based uh, um, immigration policies. Um, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, your an economic migration policy has to have a significant role for um, market, for labour demand and for what the the UK labour market needs. There are a lot of complicated questions about whether that is determined by Whitehall and Westminster determining what skill needs are or by employers or by individuals, um, which uh, which we probably haven't got time to. But the idea that you have a degree of selectivity, uh, um, I think, is, is, is correct. But I think we should also be clear that, that there are some uh, aspects of immigration policy where, where there are um, uh, a set of uh, um, wider political, social and moral choices. The previous government uh, introduced a set of rules that essentially says that uh, um, British people who marry somebody from outside the EU and in future British people who marry somebody from outside the UK are only allowed to live with them in this country if they earn over a certain amount. Um, I'm not sure that that's uh, um, the sort of policy that we think uh, um, uh, you know uh, 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 we want to be associated with as a country. And uh, you know, I, I think there are uh, um, there so there are some issues in, in immigration policy which go uh, which go much wider. And I think there are you know there are issues here where you. Uh, um, um, where one, uh, one one needs to, to to take a stand, as it were. Um, my, you know, uh, um, Eric Kaufman, who's a professor of politics at Birkbeck, um, argue, you know, uh, uh, has argued that um, what, uh, based on his research of what he claims public opinion is, that that um, what we need is a policy that essentially prioritizes. Uh, you know, people who will fit in here because they're white or they're uh, um, 
Christian or whatever, um, and we should explicitly reflect those things in our immigration policy. Um, I'm not too keen on that, uh, say, as a, as a way forward. Okay, so let's just wrap this up by asking about, I was going to ask about what post-Brexit Britain would look like, but actually we should talk about what a post-COVID and post-Brexit mm. Britain looks like, because I think that we have to look at the two together. So we've talked about a more activist um, government in terms of skills. We've talked about what an immigration policy might look like. So is there anything else that you wanted to add about the Britain of the future post-Brexit, post-COVID, and maybe re-emphasise the things that you think are most important and add anything that you think you'd like to add at this point? Um, I mean, I think the... uh the key, let's see, I mean, uh, probably the, the most, the single biggest influence on the, the shape of British economic policy over the next uh, um, 30 years or so um, will probably not be Brexit or COVID, but the government's uh, the commitment enshrined in law to net zero carbon emissions. Um, and, you know, there were some question marks about whether the Johnson government would be serious about that, but they have committed themselves pretty firmly and strongly to that. Now, if you take that seriously, that is a, sort of, that is a fundamental transformation of British economy and to some extent society. Um, it requires a huge amount of investment, both public and private. It involves a huge amount of retooling of our infrastructure and changes in the way we, uh, the way we live. Um, so... In some sense, you know, that could, assuming that, as I say, that the government is, is as, as it appears to be, genuinely serious about meeting that commitment, um, will be transformational for good or ill, um, and possibly more so than either, uh, uh, either Brexit or COVID. Um, similarly, change technolo- the, the influence of, of technology, data and AI on the labour market, the type of jobs we do, um, how... Um, firms and businesses are organized um, is arguably going to be significantly more profound than Brexit uh, or uh, or COVID over the next few years. Um, So in some ways, I mean, I think, you know, there is little doubt that Brexit will do um, some economic damage. It will obstruct our trade with the EU and make us somewhat poorer than we otherwise would have been. That's a consensus among economists, and I have no you know, my own work is, has pointed in that direction too. No, there's no real reason to, dis, to dissent from it. But um, it's probably in, in many ways not a, as big a deal for the future shape of the British economy as, uh, uh, as either net zero or technological change. Um, and the same applies even more so to COVID, which I suspect actually post the vaccine will probably not do that much to the shape of the economy, possibly accelerate some trends towards flexible working and home working, which would have come about in due course anyway, and are probably a, broadly a, a good thing. Um, so I think, you know, we probably need to put those things behind us in some sense and work out how are we going to address those future challenges? What does that mean for government intervention in the economy? How are we going to deal with some of the distributional questions uh, that um, arise both out of those challenges and over the about the, and, and from the fact that over the last ten years we've had governments that have deliberately chosen to make the poor poorer uh, um, uh, for uh, uh, for political reasons? Are we going to carry on with that choice, or are we going to try and reverse it? That you know, and that's a that is a, a, polit- a set of political choices uh, around distribution uh, and inequality, which which we have to address, but which will only be accentuated in particular by technological change. Um, so I think it's not so much about dealing with COVID about uh, Brexit, but looking forward and seeing, well, we actually have some pretty big challenges on our plate. How are we going to address them? John, you've given us a brilliant chance to plug our planned discussion for hopefully next week, which we're hoping to tackle exactly the kind of build back better stuff. So uh, in relation to um, uh, greening the economy and and certainly in relation to technological change. 
Um, but I would really not to give you an opportunity to to offer any um, any thoughts you have about what those uh, the broad sense of what those solutions might look like. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, uh, I, I'm not sure I have much more to say beyond beyond what I what I just said. Um, on on decarbonisation, you know, it will require a fundamental cha- transformation of our industrial structure, which will require both a lot of more government intervention, but also ways of working with the private sector, um, which which historically British governments have not done very well in the past. Uh, so it's very challenging. On the twin challenges of changes to labour market and distribution, um, we are going to need. You know, we do really need some fairly significant changes to the way our welfare state works, which, as I said, have been hollowed out by 10 years of austerity um, and proved uh, very much inadequate to the challenges of the pandemic. And we need a new settlement to work out how to support people in work and out of work. Um, and, and that will take, again, uh, a set of political commitments and, and changes to tax and spending uh, which uh, which are going to be quite uh, quite demanding. Great, Look, Jonathan. Thank you so much. That's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I certainly feel like I've learned a lot from that. So, uh, Jonathan, once again, thank you very much for your time. It's been good, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much, as always, for uh, coming on and helping me out with this. Thanks, Martin, and thank you, Jonathan. Cheers. And thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. Goodbye.